the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.7, The Deuterocanon. As I've said before and will say again, just because we're talking Bible doesn't mean the content of this episode is appropriate for all ages. In particular, Watch out when we get to the executions in 2nd Maccabees. Also, this is in no way a careful, comprehensive, or reverent summary. Rather, this tour is meant to be a way to help get everyone on the same page before we start with papal history. We're building our Pope-colored glasses. As you've heard before, I'll be skipping plenty, and I promise you I will fail to reflect in any meaningful way on the significance these psalms and stories have outside this podcast's narrowly defined lens of Catholic Christianity. Nothing against anyone? I'd just like to get to talking about the Pope sometime. With that out of the way... At last, we're out of the Old Testament. Or are we? Dun, dun, dun! Well, no. No, we aren't. Because, contrary to the general assumption of the English-speaking world, most Christians worldwide belong to a denomination that recognizes more books in the Old Testament than what we've covered. Of course, that doesn't clarify much since technically Catholicism alone represents just over half, 50.1%, of the worldwide Christian population according to a 2011 Pew Research study. So technically, what's true for Catholics is true for most Christians. Then again, the actual views of people of faith vary from individual to individual, regardless of denominational affiliation. But I'm at risk of touching a third rail now, so I'll just note that in addition to the approximately 1.2 billion member Catholic Church, the Bible bits we're going to go through next, collectively known as the Deuterocanon, which means books of the second canon, a canon having the same sense here as it does in fan commentaries, basically meaning officially accepted. In any event, in addition to being accepted as part of the Bible by the Catholic Church, the Deuterocanonical books are also accepted as scripture by the 230 million member Eastern Orthodox churches, the 62 million member Oriental Orthodox churches, sorry if anyone winced at Oriental, but that's the universally accepted name for that tradition, say la vie, I guess, and the smaller Assyrian Church of the East. On the other end of things, tending to reject the Deuterocanonical books are between 800 million and a billion Protestants of various denominations. Now, I should note that this terminology is contentious. At the root of this, generally, in my personal view that no one is obliged to take as gospel, is a desire, as a Christian, to avoid having one's faith classified as anything other than Christianity, since a general trait of Christians of all stripes is a desire to follow Christ, and no other. As a Christian myself, I get that impulse. But as a person who needs to succinctly describe things at some point, please understand that moving forward on the show, I will consider every Christian as part of a denomination. And if you don't fall into the Catholic-slash-Orthodox bubble, you will likely be included under the label of Protestant, when that higher level of label for Christians who aren't Catholic or Orthodox is most functional. For the sake of immersion and flavor, I'll also be applying the, yes, technical terms, schismatics and heretics. 
All of that is a very long way of saying that despite, I dare say, most Christians being unaware of all the inside baseball we're about to get into, and despite most Bibles in the English-speaking world not including them, the texts of the Deuterocanon are, at least on paper, accepted by most Christians worldwide. Now, if you're curious about this discrepancy, why most English-language Bibles, and frankly, I'd guess most Bibles worldwide, skip the deuterocanonical texts, even though most Christians worldwide accept them as part of the Bible, at least to a theoretical level, it's largely due to the timing of England being a largely Protestant country right around the time the English language really got going all over the place. That, and generally speaking, Protestants do tend to place a greater emphasis on the Bible itself than Catholics and Orthodox do which I dare say is because Catholics and Orthodox have other authoritative traditions and organs to use. In other words, in other words, that greater emphasis is not because Catholics and the Orthodox have a lower esteem for the Bible, but because emphasis is a matter of contrast. When you have a flat plain at a high elevation, a small mound might technically qualify as a mountain, but it wouldn't be called one for the same reason. Emphasis and mountains are both matters of contrast. We'll have plenty of chances to get into all the Catholic versus Orthodox versus Protestant more as we go. For now, let's peer back into history once again and talk about how we got the Old Testament, such as it is. According to Jewish tradition, the decision to accept some of the writings floating around during the Second Temple period as canon and to reject others was made by a group called the Men of the Great Assembly a collection of 120 scholars and sages said to include such familiar faces as Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Sometime during the Second Temple period, this group fixed the Tanakh, which, by the way, is the Jewish term for the Old Testament. It occurred to me I should probably tell you that at some point, since you probably guessed they don't call it the Old Testament. Now, when the men of the Great Assembly did their thing, they went with the book list accepted by most Protestants, at least in terms of the Old Testament slash Tanakh. Now, I'm not aiming to do apologetics, so I'm not advocating for one canon of scripture over others here, but for the purpose of this show, to keep things manageable as we move forward, we will indeed be going with Catholic or bust, with our Pope-colored glasses applied. So, what is the Catholic Old Testament? What's included in it that isn't in many Protestant Bibles or the Tanakh? Well, not everything in the Deuterocanon is a blockbuster of huge importance, to be very honest. A lot of it is pretty mundane, and describing it is pretty mundane as well. So, sorry about that. And of course, there are many good roundups of the Deuterocanon around for free. But none of those are in the form of my podcast, and so I figured I might as well spare no expense or effort when it comes to presenting you with a complete package of an educational experience. And I use that educational term loosely. There's air quotes going on all over the place here. So... Going in quasi-chronological order, by narrative setting or primary association, as we did with our primary walkthrough, in the Deuterocanon, there's also known as the Wisdom of Solomon, allegedly written by King Solomon, and it's basically just a moral exhortation. Be just, be wise, don't not be those things. Oh, and the wicked folks who think what they do doesn't matter? Are wrong. It's very profound stuff. Scholars agree that the Book of Wisdom was originally written in Greek, which probably hurt its case for inclusion in the eyes of the men of the Great Assembly. Hebrew language was strongly preferred. It also may have simply come along too late. Far from Solomon's day, even though it's traditionally credited to him, scholars tend to peg its composition at like 30 BC. 
Now, the Book of Tobit is quite a trip. The titular Tobit is a Naphtalite who, like Daniel before him, has been deported by the occupiers to Nineveh rather than to Babylon, since Naphtali was one of the ten lost tribes of the kingdom of Samaria that fell to Assyria long before Judah fell to Nebuchadnezzar. So I guess I mean like Daniel long after him rather than Daniel before him. A Tobit is a bit like the Book of Ruth, with a bit of a love story as the main focus insofar as there is a main focus, and man, Tobit is a heck of a weird love story. Our titular hero, Tobit, is a righteous man. One major feature of his righteousness is that he buries dead folks left just lying around, I guess, since that's a thing. Soon, a bird poops in his eyes, which blinds him, and his marriage is strained when he falsely accuses his wife of having stolen a goat that she was given in lieu of a short paycheck. Tobit proceeds to pray for death, and now I guess we could think of this book as a weird Job-slash-Ruth hybrid. But where's the Ruth part? Where's the romance? Well, soon we meet Sarah, the MPDG. By that, of course, I mean the maliciously possessed dream girl, not to be confused with the traditional manic pixie dream girl. In any case, as you may have guessed by the maliciously possessed part, Sarah has a bit of a problem. Asmodeus, the demon of lust, the worst of the demons, we're told, abducts and kills every man Sarah marries on their wedding night before the marriage can be consummated. Huh. Now, God sends Raphael, traditionally understood as one of the seven archangels, basically super angels, to earth, disguised as a human, and with the goal of fixing Tobit's eyes and Sarah's embarrassing murder-demon problems. It's actually the book of Tobit that gives us a fair amount of our flavor to the archangels, especially the part where Raphael says, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. That's in Tobit chapter 12, verse 15. Now, we don't get the name of all the seven archangels, only three. Our boy Raphael here, who's connected with healing, as we'll see. There's also Gabriel, the heavenly messenger, who we'll see more of quite soon. And last, but absolutely not least, there's Michael, perhaps more accurately, Mikhail, who popped up a few times in the book of Daniel, but I managed to not cover him, and who also shows up hanging around in a few places in the New Testament, including a scene where he totally kicks Satan's butt. Getting back to the story at hand, the book of Tobit, we've got one more major character to introduce. Tobit's son, Tobias. Tobit sends Tobias off to withdraw money he had socked away in far-off media, which happens to be where demon-vexed Sarah is carrying on with the pining and sighing or whatever it was a maiden would be doing under the circumstances. Perhaps collecting life insurance payouts from her erstwhile suitors? Along the way to Medea, accompanied by his dog, which is just a lovely detail, Tobias encounters Raphael in disguise. Now, the fact that Tobias doesn't run screaming in the opposite direction suggests that archangels must look pretty different from the angels described in the book of Ezekiel, what with all the wheels and wings and eyes and such. Nope. As far as Tobias is concerned, and I'm just going to start calling him Toby, as far as Toby's concerned, Raphael is his kinsman, Azariah. And of course, kin should travel together, so off they go. Along the way, when they're splashing around in the Tigris River, in most likely modern-day Iraq, or possibly the easternmost bits of Turkey, in any case, along the way, a fish tries to eat Toby's foot. Toby, who presumably did not want his foot eaten by the fish as much as the fish wanted to eat his foot, killed the fish and removed its heart, 
liver, and gallbladder. Now, for the next bit, I'm just going to quote the ever-reliable Wikipedia summary, both to give you an idea of the current quality of my research process, and because it's just so gosh darn delightful. Quote, Upon arriving in media, Raphael tells Toby, okay, says Tobias, of the beautiful Sarah, whom Tobias has the right to marry, because he is her cousin and closest relative. End quote. Yes, this sort of dibs by family evidently was a thing, Leverite marriage, spelled out in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, which describes the right and, to an extent, the obligation of brothers to marry their deceased sibling's former wife. And the concept applied to kinfolk generally was a major feature of the Book of Ruth, which you actually don't have much reason to remember, because I tore through that book pretty quickly back in episode 3, and I don't even know if I mentioned Leverite marriage. In any event, while having familial dibs certainly makes life easier, and evidently once they got to their destination, they were able to woo the only person whose opinion mattered, uh, Sarah's father, Raguel, even with all those things in place, there was still the important matter of the suitor-killing demon. Unbeknownst to Toby, Raguel had literally been digging a grave for him. He'd buried her last seven suitors on their wedding night. But Toby has an ace up his sleeve. Or rather, he has fish guts. Somewhere. Were pockets a thing at this point? Well, probably not for women. Take that, pocketless women. <laughs> oh. However he carried them, maybe a bag, Raphael had advised that Toby burn the fish's liver and heart like some sort of slimy incense. And lo and behold, the demon, Asmodeus, was driven off to Egypt, where Raphael does the mystical equivalent of hog-tying him, presumably while in angel mode. But Raphael's not done with his undercover work yet. Toby, Sarah, and Raphael pretending to be Azariah all travel back to Tobit in Nineveh. There, Raphael has Toby cure Tobit's blindness using the fish's gallbladder as a salve. Man, medicine sure is fun. At last, the big reveal! Azariah is the archangel Raphael! Tobit and Toby are afraid, but they are told to not be afraid. So they aren't afraid anymore. And scene. A little addendum. Because of its focus on marriage, some pretty tame, honestly, portions of the Book of Tobit are fairly popular choices for readings at Catholic weddings. Frankly, I think if you're going to read Tobit, you should embrace the weirdness. Enough with the standard lovey-dovey stuff about marriage, Give me the bird droppings, the demons, and the fish organs. Come on, let's spice it up a little bit. Up next, Baruch, a.k.a. the letter to Jeremiah. Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary, so unsurprisingly, his themes are pretty similar to Jeremiah's. Yes, bad things are happening, and they're happening because y'all are worshipping those idols like Baal and the child-sacrifice-loving Moloch, false gods, Instead of the Lord, the true God. That's enough of that. We're going in-depth, but not that in-depth. We do have the rest of Daniel, though, including the prayer of the three children, Susanna and the elders, and Bell and the dragon. And now, we're back to the book of Daniel to bring you the Catholic and Orthodox premium content, free of charge. We already mentioned the prayer Rack, Shack, and Benny sing in the furnace, which is a fairly straightforward continuation of Daniel 3, where they praise God and whatnot. But there are two more pieces to cover, because there's always more to Daniel, my friends. Oh, by the way, it was Nebuchadnezzar who had Rakshak and Benny tossed into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Never change, Nebuchadnezzar. 
Susanna and the Elders. First off, Susanna and the Elders, said as chapter 13 of the Book of Daniel. I almost gave a content warning for rape on this one, but no rape actually happens, and I suppose I just gave a qualified content warning on this one anyways. Our story begins with, well, minor backstory I'm not going to trouble you with. The real narrative action begins as soon as the titular Susanna sends her servants away so she can bathe alone in her back garden. But it turns out she's not alone. Two truly dirty old men, elders and judges as it happens, are peeping from behind the bushes. Once the servants depart, they emerge, demanding that Susanna have sex with them or be accused of a tryst with an imaginary young lover, an offense punishable by death. Susanna refuses their coercion, screaming to draw attention and to prevent her rape, and they follow through on their threat, sentencing her based on their testimony as elders and in their role as judges. But before she's put to death, she prays, proclaiming her innocence and beseeching the all-knowing God for help. God hears her prayer, thank God, and stirs up the spirit of a certain young man named Daniel. Yes, that Daniel. From here, and frankly from the beginning, Susanna and the Elders has the feel of a procedural drama. A short one, since it's only a chapter long, but it's a fairly happening chapter. Quote, I am innocent of this woman's blood, Daniel cries out. He demands proper investigation and review of the evidence. In a critical move, he insists the elders be cross-examined separately. The first says Susanna and the young man met under a mastic tree, which is a fairly stumpy kind of tree. The second, to audible gasps from the crowd, confirms that the young lovers were under an oak tree, which would have been a much larger tree, very difficult to confuse with a mastic. With their shaky testimony exposed, the elders received the punishment they had intended for Susanna. Death. Up next, Bell and the Dragon. Daniel chapter 14 comes in three sections, one of which we actually already covered because I couldn't help looping this account of Daniel in the lion's den with the other one. This one is the one that had the part where Habakkuk doesn't know who Daniel is, but he ends up magically teleporting over and feeding him. But how did Daniel end up in the lion's den in this version? Well, he honked off the king by embarrassing two gods, that's how. Yep, specifically, as you might have guessed, Bel and the dragon. Yep, the Catholic Bible has a straight-up dragon, casually described in what's presented as a historical narrative. You jealous? Let's follow the order in the title and do Bel first. Bel was the name of a bronze and clay idol that allegedly consumed 12 bushels of what's described as choice flour, as well as 40 sheep, and six measures of wine every night. I don't know how much wine comes into measure, but I know it's more than your average statue drinks, and Daniel knew that as well, so he called shenanigans. The priests of Bel were themselves confident, and suddenly, recalling the good old days of Elijah versus the priests of the similarly named but to be distinguished Baal, we've got a god off, with death on the line. Now, the secret of the disappearing food was apparently a hidden trap door that the priests of Bel would use along with their families. The night of the challenge, things proceeded as normal, and in the morning, the king proclaimed Bel the winner. Quote, You are great, O Bel, and in you there is no deceit at all. End quote. Daniel, chapter 14, verse 18. Daniel merely laughed and told the king to look further, especially downward. 
On the floor, which Daniel had covered with ashes, there were all sorts of footprints of men, women, and children, of the priests of Bel and their families. Their plot uncovered, they were put to death. So that was Bel, and now the dragon. It's short, so let's just read it, shall we? Quote, Now in that place there was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. The king said to Daniel, You cannot deny that this is a living god, so worship him. Daniel said, I worship the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But give me permission, O king, and I will kill the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took pitch, fat, and hair, and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and burst open. Then Daniel said, See what you have been worshipping? End quote. Daniel Chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. As a thank you, into the lion's den went Daniel. He survived, of course. The lions didn't touch him, but they greedily gobbled up his accusers, much like in the first telling. And that's the end of Daniel. Please indulge me before we leave Daniel behind. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. All right, all right, that's enough of that. Up next, we've got the rest of Esther. Like Daniel, the book of Esther is longer in Catholic Bibles. Also like Daniel, the passages in question tend to be present only in Greek editions. So, for example, in my first draft of this section, I had titled this Greek Esther. In case your memory of it is already fading, recall that Esther is the story of Purim, and is named after the dice roll that chose the date that the Jews were to be massacred due to the insult the Persian official Haman felt due to Mordecai the Jew refusing to bow to him due to his faith. Queen Esther outs herself and intercedes on behalf of all the Jews. The downer is because apparently Persian decrees could not be revoked, so they were still legally able to be slaughtered, and so had to defend themselves, killing tens of thousands of their enemies for pretty much no reason. But there's a silver lining, because in the supplemental research for these editions, I learned that Purim celebrations have long included a mandate that folks should not be able to tell the difference between the phrase, cursed be Haman, and the phrase, blessed be Mordecai. Which is just a lovely detail. If you're curious, that's from the Babylonian Talmud, Megillah 7b. I can pronounce things I promise. No, I can't. Now that we're back in an Esther mindset, note that for the most part, the bits and bobs that made it into the Catholic version of Esther do not fundamentally change the story, but instead they're things like copies of decrees referenced but not spelled out in the Hebrew versions, and supplemental prayers. In this category, there are the contents of the decree against Jews, Prayers for God's intervention offered by Mordecai and by Esther, a copy of the decree in favor of the Jews, and a passage in which Mordecai interprets his dream from the prologue in terms of the events that followed. Oh, what? Prologue? Oh, well, yeah. Okay, so there's also a prologue now. It describes a dream Mordecai had about two dragons getting ready to fight, and a tiny spring growing into a great river. And soon he overhears some eunuchs planning to overthrow King Artaxerxes. He rats on them, and he gets promoted high enough that he winds up on Haman's radar. The next supplemental chunk of Esther goes into more detail about how she ended up um, going into the king's service, in particular as his wife. Frankly, I found it a bit rambly, so I'm not going to take a crack at providing closer detail. Now, the last portion of Greek Esther that's absent from the Hebrew, and is therefore deuterocanonical, is a bit of a credit roll at the end, which reads, quote, In the fourth year of the reign of Ptolemy and Cleopatra, Dositheus, who said he was a priest and Levite, 
and his son Ptolemy brought the present letter of Purim, saying that it was genuine, and that Lysimachus, son of Ptolemy, of the community of Jerusalem, had translated it. End quote. Next up on our tour, we have the Book of Sirach, sometimes also called Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with the protocanonical, that's the opposite of deuterocanonical, so everything that isn't deuterocanonical, Ecclesiastes. So that is in the Bible that everyone agrees. Sirach, anyways, is basically Proverbs 2 Electric Boogaloo, but it is from a first-person perspective rather than just presented as a collection of unattributed aphorisms. Speaking of attribution, Sirach is actually signed, and I couldn't find any real doubt among the eggheads that the book of Sirach was in fact written by one Joshua ben Sirach, as it's signed. Even more interesting, we have a prologue written by the guy who translated it into Greek. More interesting still, there's enough data to comfortably date the prologue to the year 132 BC, which is critical because, most interesting of all, that prologue contains a fairly robust list of the canon of scripture at the time, including the bulk of the protocanonical books except for Ruth, the Song of Songs, Esther, and Daniel. This is the earliest documentation of the current catalog of prophetic books, uh, keeping in mind Daniel is classified as one of the Ketuvim, that's writings, rather than the Nevi'im, the prophets in the Tanakh. All that puts the composition of Sirach itself around 200 to 175 BC. So, Sirach. Pretty unremarkable content, especially for its size. I mean, it's giant, but sorry. But it's important for historians. Oh, it's also incredibly misogynistic. Like, more than the average. Next up, the Book of Judith. Oh, wait, what's this? Oh, good news! Nebuchadnezzar fans! He's back! In the Book of Judith, Nebuchadnezzar is incorrectly identified as an Assyrian king rather than a Babylonian one. And believe it or not, he isn't even a main character. But he's there, so that's a consolation. Oh, who are these main characters upstaging Nebuchadnezzar? Well, if you guess Judith, you get a prize, even though you didn't really do much to earn one. Though I suppose, as we learn from Tobit, the titular character isn't always the main one, because that was Tobias there. In any event, the beautiful and charming widow Judith is indeed our heroine, and she squares off against Holofernes, one of Nebuchadnezzar's generals. Of course, you might ask why we're talking Assyrians and Babylonians at all when we've gotten down to the 2nd century BC or so in our timeline. The answer, my friends, is that the Book of Judith is sometimes considered to be the first historical novel. No offense to Sir Walter Scott's Waverly, which is what you tend to get when you plug in the first historical novel into Google. What makes Judith a historical novel? Well, its historical tidbits are all over the place, frankly too blatantly so for it to merely be an error. Nebuchadnezzar as an Assyrian is one example, but also it's mentioned that the Jews had recently returned from the exile and re-sanctified the temple after its profanation. Which, wait, what? This is almost like a historical word salad. Real events that have real meaning all jumbled up confusingly, though it gives us a chance to review. You see, in the 8th century BC, it had been the Assyrians who had taken over the northern kingdom of Samaria, those lost ten tribes. Then in the 6th century, again still BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went to Jerusalem and took it, destroying Solomon's temple in the process and sending the Jews into exile. The return from exile traditionally came 80 years after that, though it took a few decades to get the temple back online. But we're not talking about rebuilding a destroyed temple here. We're talking about re-sanctifying a profaned temple. When was the temple profaned? Well, for this, 
we need to go forward just a hair from the time of Sirach to 168 BC, six or seven years into the reign of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning God Manifest, which isn't a title that would have been well received among the Jews of his realm. When I say he was a Seleucid king, that pegs him as a successor to Seleucus IV Nicator, one of Alexander the Great's generals who had split up his personal empire after the great conqueror's death. And I might as well finish walking backwards to remind you that Alexander the Great had had a personal empire in large part because he'd conquered Persia, which had been the successor state to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Clear as mud, I'm sure. In any event, it was the Seleucid Antiochus IV Epiphanes who profaned the Second Temple in 168 BC in retaliation after the Jews had rebelled against him while he was off fighting in Egypt. We'll get into all that more shortly, since it's what drives the plots of our final deuterocanonical texts. But for now, it's just one more piece of historical context that's floating around in the air as we look at Judith. In that light, whether you think of it as a historical novel or as a fairy tale, straightforward history it is not. Our story begins with Nebuchadnezzar unleashing General Holofernes onto the world. He takes over all sorts of places and ultimately ends up besieging Jerusalem, where folks are despairing, except for Judith, who has faith that God will see them through. But she's not passively waiting for their deliverance. No, Judith has a plan to accompany her prayers and fasting. She does her hair and gets her scent on, putting aside her somber widow clothes and putting on all her jewelry, then making her way to Holofernes' tent along with her trusty sidekick, unnamed maidservant. Actually, she does this several times, slowly building Holofernes' trust and suggesting that she could help him by spying on the Israelites for him. Eventually, she does win his trust enough to get him drunk and to have him send his guards out of the room. Then it's time for perhaps the most captured moment in art history that comes between creation and the Annunciation. Like a latter-day judge, with the help of her maidservant, Judith beheads General Holofernes. Judith and maidservant sneak out, head in tow, and return to Jerusalem. Using the head as evidence of her victory, Judith steps fully into a judge-type role. I'm steering clear of Judge Judy jokes, lest I be beheaded by a zombie Judith, but the potential is definitely there. Now, when the Assyrians see the Israelites massing for a strike following Judith's instructions, they go to wake Holofernes and discover his headless corpse. The Assyrians are routed, and Judith soaks in the victory God had given through her for the rest of her long life living to 105. Sought by many, she never remarries. An even unnamed maidservant gets a happy ending, being set free. The book of Judith concludes, quote, No one ever again spread terror among the Israelites during the lifetime of Judith, or for a long time after her death. End quote. Really does sound like something from the book of Judges. But I must remind you, this is a work of fiction, of an imagined past victory likely designed to stir the hopes of a people in their present difficulty. And it's now time to discuss what that present difficulty likely was. Next up, the Maccabees. We keep name-dropping Antiochus IV Epiphanes, first as the most likely little horn in Daniel, then as the foreshadowing of the next Purim-like event at the next Esther, and of course, just now, in Judith, as a best-guess reason, there's a discussion of reconsecrating the temple. Now it's finally time to tell the story of the Maccabees, and the rise of the Hasmonean kingdom that will eventually break free from the Seleucids altogether, 
leading to an independent Jewish state for the first time since Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. But it was not to last. Even at the time of the Maccabees, the legions of Rome had spread beyond Italy in their gradual conquest of the Mediterranean world. Indeed, according to the Roman historian Livy, it was the intervention of Rome that prevented Antiochus from carrying out his plan to completely overthrow the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt, his Hellenistic cousins, as it were, being another dynasty that grew out of Alexander's empire. The story goes that the Senate of the Roman Republic had ordered Antiochus to abandon his attack on Alexandria, the Ptolemy's capital. Antiochus stalled for diplomatic time, but he kept advancing until he was confronted by a Roman diplomat, Popilius Leonis, who insisted on an answer. When Antiochus said he would mull it over, Popilius drew a circle around Antiochus and said that he could not step outside the circle until he gave an official reply for Popilius to bring back to the Senate. Stuck, Antiochus agreed to abandon his plans. I think it's fair to say that when a bully is frustrated by their inability to take on a larger foe, often enough they'll end up taking out their frustration on a weaker target. Certainly, that seems to have been Antiochus's plan, because when he arrived back in the area, he began a campaign to eradicate Jewish beliefs and practices. And this is when he plundered the temple, as described in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, and he rededicated it to Zeus, that Greek sky god, according to 2 Maccabees chapter 6 verse 2. Then, he began demanding that everyone in the kingdom worship the Greek gods, which, needless to say, did not sit well with all of his Jewish subjects. Though 1 Maccabees makes it clear that some Jews were perfectly willing to go along with the Hellenization campaign, even taking steps to undo their circumcision, which would have been fairly apparent in the communal baths that were set up in and around Jerusalem at the time. To be clear, in case this part of history isn't familiar to you, the communal bathing thing isn't just an Antiochus thing. It was a broader part of Greek and Roman culture. Now this all wasn't a gentle call to conversion either, according to the text. Those that continued Jewish practices like circumcision and those that refused to sacrifice to the Greek gods, idols and Bible speak, were put to death. Eventually, Antiochus's representative arrived in Modane, home of a Jewish high priest named Mattathias and his five sons. Mattathias was offered the opportunity to be the first to offer sacrifice to the pagan god, a pagan god, as you likely already know, being a term for any god, but god. But Mattathias refused. Moreover, when another Jew came forward to comply, Mattathias became filled with rage, and he killed him on the altar. Then, he killed the messenger, and destroyed the altar, and fled into the mountains, sons in tow. So began the revolt of the Maccabees. Antiochus' troops began to look for the nascent rebels in the mountains, and soon found a thousand of them grouped together. The troops' timing made their grim work easy, as those thousand refugees refused to fight on the Sabbath, given the whole day of rest thing. They were slaughtered. Mattathias and his friends saw this go down, and they concluded that under the circumstances, they would follow a more practical approach, fighting even on the Sabbath when necessary for self-defense. Apparently, they had no issue with recruitment, and soon, there was a sizable contingent of Jewish rebels tearing down pagan altars, smiting sinners, and forcibly circumcising all the uncircumcised boys they found in the territory of Israel. Which, ouch. In 166 BC, just a year or so into this revolt, Mattathias passed the torch on to his sons, leaving military matters in the eminently capable hands of his third son, Judas 
Maccabeus. That nickname, Hamakabee, or something kind of like that, means hammer in Hebrew. And indeed, it's where the title of the book comes from. Now sure, the hammer nickname was about the man, and I'm refraining from making a Captain Hammer joke here, but I still thought it interesting when I noticed on rereading it that his weapon of choice was a sword rather than anything more worthy of Thor. Of course, a pagan god comparison would be pretty unwelcome for Judas Maccabeus, since that's exactly what he's rebelling against. And boy oh boy, is he ever good at rebelling. He's so good at rebelling, in fact, that by chapter 4, they're rededicating the second temple, with Judas Maccabeus as the high priest. They had to do some creative problem solving, though, because they didn't know of an appropriate way to deal with the altar of sacrifice, which had been defiled. They opted to replace it, a fresh start and all that, but they didn't have a way to properly dispose of the old altar. So they set the stones aside, quote, until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them, end quote. Now we haven't had a random deep dive Catholic digression in whole minutes, so let's do that now. From time to time, Catholics have to deal with worn out holy things, like the altar of sacrifice. There are two basic options for this. Burning, which would have certainly been a challenge for the stone altar replacing Maccabees, and burying, which is probably what ended up happening to those altar stones, whether it was intended to be a respectful send-off or it just sort of happened. Now, I haven't verified the eventual fate of those altar stones or even come across any theories or rumors about them, probably because, to lean into stereotypes, Catholics are rubbish when it comes to actually picking up and reading their Bibles, so we Catholics aren't as likely to comment on an ob random obscure Bible passage as our Protestant brothers and sisters might be. It sounds like this, I wish the book of Maccabees were proto-canonical so I could look over their shoulders. Now, there's a few side stories in this relic-disposing topic we might as well pass around while we're here. But first, a bit of trivia. The Palms from Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and if you don't know Easter, we'll get into that soon enough, they're traditionally kept around to dry out, and then they're brought back to the church shortly before Ash Wednesday to be burned and to serve as the ashes for Ash Wednesday. I'll resist the urge to go deeper into the Christian calendar just yet, but I thought you might have a trivia night coming up, so I wanted to make sure you had that ready to go. One thing I find interesting to reflect on in this context is the fact that a lot of what we throw out ends up buried or burned already. But of course, it's not so much about how things end up, so much as your intentions. Burning or burying matches the way we tend to deal with dead humans. Though really, it's a bit misleading to bring that up, since, as I understand it, Cremation was taboo for Christians until recently, certainly for Catholics. Anyways, with that grain of salt set aside, the general idea is that burning or burying are both respectful and intentional methods of disposal, rather than just a thoughtless tossing aside. Now, just because you know the rules and you've got a good backup option for disposing of non-flammable items doesn't mean there aren't some unusual cases that can lead to amusing case studies. At one point, I heard the story of an old vacuum cleaner found buried in one of the gardens at a parish. Oh, parish is another name for church. This was in Canada, by the way. After some research, it was discovered that this was the final result of some confusion when a chalice filled with the precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, that is, had spilled, and an evidently too helpful member of the cleaning crew had vacuumed up that quote-unquote mess right away. So that's the old vacuum cleaner story. Now, there is a specific method for dealing with Eucharistic leavings. It's one that actually gets regular use, since when every crumb is still considered God, it's best if you mind your crumbs. 
In the sacristy of Catholic churches, sacristy is the room where the priest and the altar servers and such get all robed up, there's a special sink called the sacrarium. Rather than draining into the sewer, it drains into the ground, thus allowing for, more or less, burial of any Jesus particles. If there are larger bits of the host, that is the bread turned Jesus, that need proper disposal, they're dissolved in water and then they're poured down the sacrarium. All right, before you decide to dissolve me and pour me down the sacrarium because I took too long doing too many tangents, let's go ahead and get back to our story, such as it is, that we're immediately shuffling off to another tangent because after the rededication of the temple, quote, Judas and his brothers and the entire assembly of Israel decreed that every year for eight days from the 25th day of the months of Kislev, the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness on the anniversary, end quote. That's from 1 Maccabees, chapter 4, verse 59. Now, there's no menorah here, that iconic lampstand, but this is the beginning of Hanukkah. I would do tracing the origins of Hanukkah even less justice than the bits and bobs I'm covering, and really, I'm not solving that particular question with what I'm doing now. But while there are several places to learn about the origins of Hanukkah, there's only one podcast by Rav Mike Foyer, The Jewish Story. I don't recall him talking about the origins of Hanukkah specifically, but listening to his podcast has been a rewarding and enriching experience, and I dare say it's been a blessing. Soon, our story will depart from the Jewish story, so if you want to continue that story, I definitely recommend The Jewish Story by Rav Mike Foyer at jewishhistory.co. There you'll find wonderful stories you may not have come across otherwise, such as the story of the Exilarchs, the leaders of the Jewish community in Babylon during the medieval era, claiming to be the continuation of the House of David. You'll also find fascinating details, such as why a wasp was incorporated in the heraldry of that Exilarch. Now that last passage we read with that decree mentioned Judas and his brothers, and we might as well use that family lens to navigate the rest of 1 Maccabees especially because the whole family is, in essence, the Mary Sue do-no-wrong heroes of this particular book. In fact, when some subordinate commanders run off for their own glory, they get wrecked. In part because, we're told, quote, they did not belong to the family of the Maccabees, whom God had chosen to bring freedom to the people of Israel. End quote. 1 Maccabees, chapter 5, verse 62. So, as for the family of the Maccabees, Remember, it was the father of the gang, Mattathias, who had kicked off the whole revolt in 175 BC, not too long after he died, passing the military mantle to his third son, Judas Maccabeus, our current leader, in charge of much bloodshed, like asking to pass through a town peacefully, and then switching to marching over the corpses of the inhabitants when they refuse. We see that in 1 Maccabees chapter 5, verse 51. War, as they say, is hell. Of course, with Judas Maccabeus being Mattathias' third son, we need to circle back to his first two sons. Mattathias' first son was one John Gotti, presumably no relation to the gangster, who isn't shown doing much and who dies in a raid in 160. I'm going to stop saying BC and just leave it implied for the rest of the episode, by the way. And we'll go ahead and circle back to the second son, Simon, later. Now, we've already been discussing son number three, Judas Maccabeus. So we'll leave him as we leave most of our characters. Dead. I'm looking at you, Enoch and Elijah, for making me say most there. Specifically, dead in 160, a bit before his older brother John Gotti, 
still not the gangster. Son number four, Eliezer, had actually died a couple of years before the two deaths in 160, being crushed by a war elephant. That elephant had been the biggest around and in special armor, so Eliezer had gone underneath it and killed it from below, planning on a glorious victory. It's not clear whether he expected to die or to come out from under it somehow, but whatever his plan was, it was the death of both he and the elephant, but not of King Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, as Eliezer had hoped. Though Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, does die in the next chapter of depression or something when he realizes God isn't happy with his efforts to Hellenize the Judeans. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is succeeded after some shuffling by Demetrius. There's a new king of the Seleucid kingdom in town. And there's also a new leader of the Maccabees. Jonathan Maccabeus, the fifth son of Mattathias, is now leading the charge, personally and heroically and such. It's Jonathan Maccabeus who squares off against King Demetrius's officers on the military front and the Hellenism-friendly high priest Alchemius on the home front. Interestingly, there is no Pope versus anti-Pope situation here, as we'll see might happen at such times in our main show. The Maccabees don't like the Hellenizing Alchemius, but there's no Maccabean rival for the title of high priest, at least not in this telling. Of course, they may just have not gotten around to it. Alcimius had only been high priest, as successor to Judas Maccabeus himself, for a hot minute when he died halfway through tearing down a wall in the temple. Specifically, according to Josephus, this wall was the wall that divided Jews from Gentiles, just the sort of shenanigan a Hellenizing high priest might have been expected to get up to. Interestingly, though Maccabees relates that he died in, quote, great agony, end quote, after being interrupted in this work of, quote, destroying the work of the prophets, end quote, it doesn't take the next step of attributing this timely death to divine intervention, as you might have expected. The high priesthood is now vacant, and it actually remains so for several years by some accounts, though there's also a theory that the unnamed teacher of righteousness, who founded the Essenes, more on them in the next episode, may have held the post for that span. Around this time, quote, the sword ceased in Israel, end quote. King Demetrius got tired of fighting the Maccabees and vice versa. For a while, there is indeed peace. Now, remember when I mentioned there was some shuffling before Demetrius became king? Well, Jonathan ends up benefiting from that because that shuffling left Alexander, son of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, as a claimant for the throne. Jonathan initially supports Demetrius in putting down that rebellion, but then Alexander sways Jonathan to his side by offering to make him high priest in return for his support, and before long, Demetrius is dead. Long live King Alexander. The years roll by and the Wheel of Fortune turns, the Boethius Stoic philosophy version, since we're a bunch of learned intellectuals and not the game show one. Now, with the help of the Egyptian Ptolemy de Jure, there are a lot of them. That dynasty is typically shorthanded just as the Ptolemies, rattling off 15 of them in 300 years. So with the help of Ptolemy VI, the son of the Demetrius Alexander had overthrown, overthrows Alexander in turn. His name? Demetrius. These types of shenanigans keep happening, and Jonathan keeps supporting one Seleucid candidate or another until he is murdered by a Diodotus Tryphon whom Maccabees calls Trypho, so we'll go with that, who's vying with Demetrius II for the Seleucid kingship. With Jonathan Maccabeus' death, it's now time. The last living son of Mattathias the OG, his second son, Simon, 
who he had decided to save for later, and later is now, he takes over both as the leader of the Maccabees and as high priest. Soon, Simon gains further independence for the Judeans, and he goes down in history as the first king of what's known as the Hasmonean Kingdom. Meanwhile, Tryphon succeeds in taking charge of the Seleucid Empire, but that hardly matters now. With the establishment of the Hasmonean Kingdom, we've set the stage for the next chapter. By the end of Maccabees, Simon is succeeded by his son, John Hyrcanus, both as Hasmonean king and as high priest. By the time John Hyrcanus is succeeded in both roles by his son, Aristobulus, the Hasmonean kingdom is now fully independent from the Seleucids. This independence won't last long, but that story takes us beyond the Old Testament and therefore out of the scope of this episode. We're closer now, folks. By the time all of the events recounted in Maccabees take place, we're within a hundred years of the birth of Jesus Christ. Before we let you go, let's swing through 2nd Maccabees, because though it really doesn't have anything to add to 1st Maccabees in terms of a solid history, boy oh boy does it ever have some fun bits, and some theological bombshells. Now, 2nd Maccabees comes in the form of two letters to a group of Jews in Egypt, probably in Alexandria. The first one is short, two paragraphs, one of them being a long introduction and the other being a quick news update. To sum up and paraphrase, they say, yeah, we had some violent depression, but we have prayer and God is good, so we're good. And also it has a reminder that sounds something like a distant parent might say to a college student. Quote, we are now reminding you to celebrate the Feast of Booths in the months of Chislev. End quote. Now the second letter is much longer. It's literally the rest of the book. And it's a series of tales from post-exilic Jewish history, along with the chapter of the author explaining why he's writing this letter and asking the Egyptian Jews to please be sure to keep the feast to honor the history described. The bulk of this second letter, including an account of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, dying via conspiracy involving a temple trap, uh, takes place just before or during the time of the Maccabees, hence why this text goes down as 2nd Maccabees. An exception to this is the section that describes the exploits of Jeremiah and then Nehemiah as they work to preserve and then recover critical components from Solomon's temple through the long Babylonian exile, including the sacred fire from the altar. Unsurprisingly, the fire doesn't stay lit the whole time. Rather, when Nehemiah's men check Jeremiah's hiding spot, only some muddy water is found. But Nehemiah must have had a hunch, because we're told he had that muddy water scooped up and then poured onto wood on the altar. When the sun came out, the holy fire reignited. Whether this can be seen as having any connection to the later developing tradition of the holy fire in Orthodox Christianity is a story for another day. Eh, between the long reach of Rome and my loose definition of relevant, I'll work the holy fire and other orthodox content in somewhere. Now buckle up for this awesome transition, because orthodox means right teaching, and the next section of 2 Maccabees is about Onias, the high priest, defending right teaching. Oh yeah, that's a smooth transition. So now we're in the reign of an unspecified King Seleucus, who is Antiochus IV Epiphanes' predecessor, and he's strapped for cash. He gets wind that the temple has such cash, 
But Onias the high priest points out that the cash is set aside for widows and orphans, and, well, okay, a guy named Hyrcanus, son of Tobias. But in any case, it isn't just a bank for the current king to make withdrawals from. Just, you know, Hyrcanus. In retrospect, they probably would have had a stronger case if they'd just stuck to widows and orphans. But they actually do have a pretty strong case anyways, since you know what? God is on their side. Now we're told the dude King Seleucus had sent, a man named Heliodorus, well, he had this happen to him. Quote, There appeared to them a magnificently caparisoned horse, with a rider of frightening mane. It rushed furiously at Heliodorus and struck at him with its front hooves. Its rider was seen to have armor and weapons of gold. Two young men also appeared to him, remarkably strong, gloriously beautiful, and splendidly dressed, who stood on either side of him and flogged him continuously, inflicting many blows on him. When he suddenly fell to the ground and deep darkness came over him, his men took him up, put him on a stretcher, and carried him away. End quote. Second Maccabees, chapter 3, verses 25 to 28. Now, this isn't the only time we see supernatural fighters in Second Maccabees. In chapter 5, we're told people all over Jerusalem see visions of cavalry troops decked out in gold, sparring with one another for a 40-day stretch. And in chapter 10, the opposing forces see five similarly gold-accented horsemen protecting Judas Maccabeus. These instances, along with the final brief mention in chapter 11, are typically understood as angelic participation, showing God's role in the conflict. Now, getting back to the span before the Maccabean revolt proper, the next bits of chapter 3 cover Onias healing the rather roughed-up Heliodorus and Heliodorus converting, presumably because it's a bit hard not to believe in the power of something that nearly killed you. Fast forward a hair, and we're now in the reign of none other than Antiochus, the fourth, Epiphanes. So having read 1st Maccabees, you know things are going to go downhill. And so they do. Jason, Onias's brother, bribes his way to high priest status. Notably, Onias wasn't dead at that point, so, ouch. Pushing your own brother aside. Now, Jason is a big bad Hellenizer, and he gets cracking on that. But he falls victim to his own precedent, as a man named Menelaus offers bigger bribes, so Jason, too, is replaced. There aren't often two high priests emeriti, but there sure are now, though not for long. Soon, we're told, Menelaus puts out a hit on the exiled Onias once he starts getting vocal about his corruption, and that was the end of Onias. Jason lasts a chapter longer. After a failed insurrection, he, too, dies in exile, off in exotic Sparta. Now, at this point, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, really starts doing his thing. Over the course of three days, we're told Jerusalem is ravaged, with 40,000 people killed and another 40,000 people sold into slavery. These numbers are doubtless exaggerated. Another number that may or may not be reliable is 10, listed as the size of the group that Judas Maccabeus leads into the wilderness once Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, defiles the temple with that wicked high priest Menelaus serving as his escort. Before that small Maccabean group can do anything, we've got two martyrdom stories to go through. The second sequence is particularly gruesome, especially the description of the martyrdom of the first son. So, a uh, fair warning on that. Skip ahead if you like. Now, in the first story, the 90-year-old Eleazar is ordered to eat pork on pain of death. 
pork, to clarify, is considered unclean under the law of Moses, that is, the dietary restrictions spelled out way back in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. He refuses, both to avoid leading anyone astray, his friends had offered to help him pretend his way out of it, and because even if he gets away with it on earth, God will catch up with him in the next life. As a result, this Eleazar is beaten to death. Now the next martyrdom sequence is the one that really drives up the body count, as we see a mother and her seven sons all put to death. As before, the specific demand of the persecutors is that they eat pork. Now, it's been a while since I've tied too much of anything to the papacy, so I'll note that when the time comes, it will be Peter, following God's command, who ends the prohibition on pork and other dietary restrictions. After the first son refuses, he is martyred in grisly fashion. Quote, This made the king so furious that he gave orders for huge pans and kettles to be heated red hot, and it was done immediately. Then he told his men to cut off the tongue of the one who had spoken, and to scalp him, and chop off his hands and feet, while his mother and six brothers looked on. After the young man had been reduced to a helpless mass of breathing flesh, the king gave orders for him to be carried over and thrown into one of the pans. As a cloud of smoke steamed up from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die bravely. End quote. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. There are certainly several contenders, but I dare say that this is the grisliest death scene in the whole dang Bible. Now, there are several contenders, but I dare say this is the grisliest death in the whole dang Bible. And the other brothers refuse and receive the same treatment in turn. Interestingly, even as they die for their traditions, they mention views that we haven't seen up until this time views which will indeed become standard parts of Christianity in time. Quote, You butcher! You may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life, because we have obeyed his laws. End quote. That's from 2 Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 9. Now, core to Catholicism, and basically all Christianity, there are probably some exceptions, so don't at me. Okay, do at me, because I actually like learning things, but just don't be a jerk about it. Anyways, the resurrection of the dead into an eternal afterlife is a belief which was evidently gaining traction within Judaism at this time, and which ends up properly enshrined in Christianity as things develop. It's possibly the most mainstream Christian belief. Now, we'll trace more of this in our next episode as we do our final ramping up into the world as it stands at the time of the Gospels. For now, we've got some more sons to martyr. When the third son loses his hands, he notes that God will give them back again, a precursor to, or perhaps an early expression of, the Christian idea that the resurrection of the dead will involve glorified bodies, that is, bodies that are whole and free of any ailments they may have had in life. In Catholic theology, the timeline after your death typically goes that your soul separates from your body at death, then you go through the cleansing fires and suffering of purgatory, unless you manage to go straight to heaven, then, eventually, you make your way into heaven, still without your body, until, eventually, at the end of earthly time, in an event known as the resurrection of the body, you get hooked back up with your resurrected body, which is the body you had in life, but free of all those imperfections and maladies. And, of course, there's always that other option apart from the purgatory-slash-heaven route. Hell. 
Which, funny you should mention that, because it sounds like that might be where Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is going. To quote son number four, quote, There will be no resurrection to life for you, Antiochus. End quote. Now, sons five and six have anti the Seleucid king messages as well, and the seventh son, encouraged by his mother, has the longest anti Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, speech of the lot, which you can look up if you like. To be honest, it's not particularly distinctive. But he does predict the king will have an awful death, and actually that he will convert before the end. In chapter 9, surprise, surprise, the king has an awful death, but converts to Judaism before the end. Who saw that one coming? Oh, that's right, son number 7. Now, to open our scene, King Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is enraged about reports of unrest, and he rushes towards Jerusalem, saying, quote, when I get there, I will make Jerusalem a cemetery of Jews, end quote. But this mustache twirling has consequences. Quote, as soon as he had said these words, the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him down with an invisible but fatal blow. He was seized with sharp intestinal pains for which there was no relief, a fitting punishment for the man who had tortured others in so many terrible ways. But this in no way caused him to give up his pride. Instead, he became more arrogant than ever, and breathing out fiery threats against the Jews, he gave orders to drive even faster. As a result, he fell out of his chariot, and with such a thud that it made every bone in his body ache. His arrogant pride made him think he had the superhuman strength to make the ocean waves obey him, and to weigh high mountains on a pair of scales. But suddenly, he fell flat on the ground, and had to be carried off on a stretcher, a clear sign to everyone of God's power. Even the eyes of this godless man were crawling with worms, and he lived in terrible pain and agony. The stink was so bad that his entire army was sickened, and no one was able to come close enough to carry him around. End quote. But then, when, quote, he could no longer endure his own stink, end quote, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, came around. Quote, I once intended to level Jerusalem to the ground, and to make that city a graveyard full of Jews, he said. But I now declare it a free city. I had planned to throw out the dead bodies of the Jews and their children for the wild animals and the birds to eat, for I did not consider them worth burying. But I now intend to grant them the same privileges as the citizens of Athens enjoy. I once looted the temples and took its sacred utensils, but I will fill it with splendid gifts and with better utensils than before, and I will pay the cost of the sacrifices from my own resources. Besides all this, I will become a Jew myself and go wherever people live, telling them of God's power. End quote. That's all from 2 Maccabees chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. By the end of the chapter, he's dead, succeeded by his son, another Antiochus. Before long, the new king and his generals are tired of losing to the divinely backed Maccabeans, and they set up a peace deal in chapter 11. Unfortunately, chapter 12 opens with a series of local governors I won't bother you with, and the mercenary commander Nicanor deciding that they're going to keep up the fighting. And soon it's all back on again, no more peace deal. There's an interesting change of pace in this section when Judas Maccabeus and his troops reach Beth Shan, north of Jerusalem. Quote, 
The Jews there told Judas how kindly the people of the city had treated them, especially during hard times. So Judas and his men thanked the people and urged them to show the same goodwill toward the Jews in the future. End quote. It's kind of refreshing after nearly two straight books of religious warfare. And chapter 12 continues with another surprising note, with the critical piece of Catholic theology popping up. Prayers for the dead. After a battle in which, shock, some of the fighters on the Maccabees side actually died, it was discovered that the dead Jews had pagan amulets hidden away under their tunics, removing the mystery of how some of the cheat-mode Maccabean fighters had managed to die in war. Rather than disowning them, which is frankly what I had expected, well, I'll quote rather than summarize so I don't come across as exaggerating. Quote, Judas, that great man, urged the people to keep away from sin because they had seen for themselves what had happened to these men who had sinned. He also took up a collection from all his men, totaling about four pounds of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. Judas did this noble thing because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. If he had not believed that the dead would be raised, it would have been foolish and useless to pray for them. In his firm and devout conviction that all of God's faithful people would receive a wonderful reward, Judas made provision for a sin offering to set free from their sin those who had died. End quote. Now, this text is one of the few we're seeing in the Deuterocanon where a difference in agreed scriptural canon has a real impact on theological debate, because this is the clearest proof text for purgatory and the importance of prayer for the dead in the whole dang Bible, which becomes a whole lot less of a proof text when it's not accepted as part of the Bible. This all was part of a series of debates that burned brightest in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation, when, to overgeneralize, Protestant groups separated themselves from the Catholic Church, both administratively and theologically. We'll certainly look at that with our Pope-colored glasses more repeatedly as we go, but for now, know that yes, as I understand it, passages like these went hand-in-hand -hand with the general hesitancy around the deuterocanonical books to allow for the lack of consensus on the Bible in the Christian world today. Though even if there were no Protestants, there would still be differences between, say, the Catholic and the Orthodox, including, in particular, differences about purgatory, which is not a teaching in Orthodox Christianity any more than it is in Protestant Christianity, even though Orthodox Christians not only include 1st and 2nd Maccabees in their canon, but also 3rd and 4th Maccabees, so it's not like they're anti-Maccabee. They do still do prayers for the dead, but they don't sweat the details much beyond that, so they don't have a developed doctrine of purgatory. Now, you may have noticed that sometimes this all gets a bit complicated, so let's have a nice little palate cleanser with the straightforward execution of a functionary at the hands of an angry monarch. There's something very relatable in that. Our victim of royal anger? The high priest, Menelaus, who had been the one present for Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, defilement of the temple. The charges are something about stirring up trouble, which is always a sore spot when the king has to lose to an army of superheroes every time trouble is stirred up. And that method of execution is... Well, quote, there is a tower about 75 feet high. It is filled with ashes, and all around the inside of the tower is a platform sloping down into the ashes. People accused of crimes against the gods or of any other serious crime are taken here, are taken there and thrown down to their death. Menelaus was put to death in that way, 
without even having the privilege of a burial. And that was just what he deserved. He had often profaned the sacred ashes of the altar fire in the temple, and now he met his death in ashes. End quote. Again tiring of losing to an army with cheat codes enabled, the king signs another peace deal with the Maccabees, and for once, the peace deal actually sticks for a bit, until Antiochus V, Eupater, is deposed by the same Demetrius who had come to power, quote, after some suffering, end quote, when we are going through 1st Maccabees. Which, that happens in the next chapter. Now, we don't actually get to the fighting resumed right away. There's first a round of negotiations with King Demetrius' top general, Nicanor. Quote, when Nicanor heard of the valor of Judas and his men, and the great courage with which they fought for their country, he shrank from deciding the issue by bloodshed. End quote. The Second Maccabees, chapter 14, verse 18. In other words, Nicanor knew what he was up against, and he was wetting his pants. Treaty, treaty negotiations carry on until, quote, a day was set on which the leaders would meet in private. Ceremonial chairs were brought out from each camp and set up. Judas had taken the precaution of placing battle-ready troops in strategic places in case of sudden treachery on the part of the enemy. But the two leaders had a friendly meeting. Nicanor stayed on in Jerusalem for some time after that. He did not mistreat the Jews in any way, and even sent away the people who had come over to his side. The two men became the best of friends, and Judas was Nicanor's constant companion. Nicanor urged him to marry and start a family. So Judas did this and settled down to a peaceful life. End quote. 2 Maccabees, chapter 14, verses 21 through 25. So, that, so that's a thing. We've got a chapter and a half left in the whole book, and Judas Maccabeus is best friends with the Seleucid governor of Judea, an accepted and apparently well-adjusted subject of King Demetrius. What happened to the tender shoots of the Hasmonean kingdom? This is a remarkable contrast to 1st Maccabees and to the historical record. Unless... Yes, there it is. Alchemius, annoyed that he isn't properly installed as the Hellenist high priest, uses the rest of the chapter to aggressively drive a wedge between Judas Maccabeus and Nicanor in the form of King Demetrius. Within ten verses, the split is complete and Nicanor is threatening to rededicate the temple, the Greek god Dionysus. Another quick graphic content warning here, because there's even enough room left in the chapter for one more dramatic and graphic story, as an old Jewish man named Razis, who Nicanor is attempting to arrest and make an example of, attempts suicide. But, quote, under the pressure of the moment, Razis misjudged the thrust of the sword, and it did not kill him. So while the soldiers were swarming into the room, he rushed to the wall and jumped off like a brave hero into the crowd below. The crowd quickly moved back, and he fell in the space they left. Still alive and burning with courage, he got up, and with blood gushing from his wounds, he ran through the crowd and finally climbed a steep rock. Now completely drained of blood, he tore out his intestines with both hands and threw them at the crowd. As he did so, he prayed for the Lord of life and breath to give them back to him. That was how he died. End quote. Second Maccabees, chapter 14, verses 43 to 46. In the final chapter, Judas Maccabeus relates a vision of encouragement he had to his men. 
he sees Onias, the former high priest we saw near the beginning of 2 Maccabees, who kicks things up a notch by also introducing Jeremiah, who in turn offers Judas a gold sword, a holy sword to crush his adversaries. This vision raises another theological idea not generally mainstream in Protestant theology, or at least not as emphasized as it is in Catholic and Orthodox theology, the intercession of the saints, especially because the long-deceased Jeremiah, quote, loves his brethren and fervently prays for his people and for their holy city, end quote. This is, in a nutshell, the other end of the concept of praying for and interceding on behalf of the deceased we saw earlier. If the dead are, in a sense, still alive in the afterlife, such that we can pray for them and ask God to forgive them, perhaps they can pray for us and ask God to assist us as well. Of course, at the risk of sounding repetitive, this passage is not generally convincing for Protestants, since it's not generally considered by Protestants to be coming from the Bible proper. My looking around seems to suggest that Protestant theologians of previous generations were perhaps open to the deuterocanonical text and to the Apocrypha, which is a less nice word for basically for our purposes, the deuterocanonical books. They were open to that in general, though generally, and I can't emphasize enough that statements like this are always generalizations, generally, the attitude has cooled to strong suspicion and at times hostility, with the word apocrypha itself now having a near derogatory connotation it seems to have lacked in the early modern era. But I could be completely off base with that thought, so take it with plenty of salt. Unsurprisingly, when the big battle finally happens between Judas Maccabeus and Nicanor, Nicanor's army is crushed. And things really did sour between the erstwhile best friends, to the extent that when Nicanor's corpse is discovered, Judas has his head and right arm cut off. The right arm because it had been stretched out against God's holy temple, and the head because, well, the severed head on display thing has been a common fate of vanquished enemies from time immemorial. Before displaying said head on the citadel wall, for good measure, Judas cuts out the tongue that had once blasphemed against the Lord, as Nicanor had done right at the beginning of this action-packed finale. Then, the people unanimously vote that the day shall never pass unobserved, establishing the Day of Nicanor, which, a footnote in my Bible mentions, was not long observed. I'm going to go ahead and plug the next episode and do my thank yous now. Uh, thank you, Billy, for audio support. Russ, for the logo. Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, thank you for your patience and for your editorial support. Now, there must have been a little bit of space left on that scroll for Second Maccabees, because we get a cute little epilogue, one that I wanted to share from me to you in much the original spirit. Quote, Since Nicanor's doings ended in this way, with the city remaining in possession of the Hebrews from that time on, I will bring my own story to an end here, too. If it is well written and to the point, that is what I wanted. If it is poorly done and mediocre, that is the best I could do. Just as it is harmful to drink water alone or wine alone, whereas mixing wine with water makes a more pleasant drink that increases delight, so a skillfully composed story delights the ears of those who read the work. Let this, then, be the end. End quote. Second Maccabees Chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. We'll see you next time, everyone.